Hi, I'm Sean Hanif, and you're listening to Life of an Entrepreneur. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to the Life of an Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Sean. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Genflow, where I help um, influencers, which are people that you probably follow on YouTube, Instagram, etc. I work with those guys and help them set up their own businesses. And, um, you know, I guess it's, it's been seven years now since I left my job. Um, so, you know, in that time, I've learned a fair few things in how how it's like really being an entrepreneur, you know. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. Um, obviously, it's the very first episode is that I feel like today it's, it's very hard to find other entrepreneurs um, that are actually doing the real building of businesses. There's so many people online kind of telling you how easy it is that you just need to set the right processes and and, uh, and so forth and it's just all going to be done for you. All you need to do is like buy this course and it's just magic and it's just going to solve it for you. Or that, you know, you have to work four hours a week and the rest will be all done for you. Someone else is going to do it. So I just decided to kind of like create this. Actually, firstly, just for myself um, because... I think it'll be a cool way for me to just express my thoughts, which may help me mentally um, with kind of like what I go through day to day. And hopefully in that will help some of you guys. But just to be clear, this podcast, I don't want it to be motivational. I don't think you I don't want you to listen to this podcast and think you're going to find the answers just like that. I don't want you to think this podcast is going to make you rich. It won't. This is just literally me an entrepreneur who lives and breathes business, building brands, doing things that pushes yourself in ways that you never thought you, you, you can actually handle and do. But in the end, you end up achieving things you never thought you'll be able to. So actually today, right now, as I record this episode, I'm currently sitting in Dubai and the news has just hit online on TechCrunch and other places that I have just closed 11 million dollar investment for my business Genflow. If you have found this podcast, I would assume you may have seen the news, you may have seen my YouTube or my Instagram, I know something about my business already, or maybe some of our clients, because we do work with some of the leading social media influencers in the world. I think the combined following, following of all our clients is around 100 million. So there's a lot of people that may have heard of us or myself or anything you've seen or touched something that we have built. So yeah, you know, that, that, uh, so we raised $11 million. And this first episode is just about how I did it. You know, uh, even going through this process, there's actually not much information online of people actually giving an honest take of what it's like to raise money. What stuff do you have to physically do to get there? If you just think about firstly, how hard is it to run a business in the first place? But then how hard is it from a probability point of view to be able to raise funding for your business, for your idea, it's extremely, extremely hard. And um, so yeah, sit back, it's going to be a good episode. And um, I'm going to get deep into how I raised the money telling you exactly, I'm not going to be fluffing over, I'm going to be giving you the exact how I did it. So let's get started. 
So I guess, look, um, just before I get into uh, why I decided to raise and the whole process, actually something that I, I want to tell everyone that's, uh, that's listening, it's pretty much like my story. And I guess it'll be useful for everyone here to get to know me a bit. Um, so, you know, what's interesting is actually in the whole pitch process, when I first pitched, um, I was very bad at it. But then I decided to just tell my story, which I'm going to tell you in a minute. And that just changed the pitch and I would hold the room's attention so well because I would just honestly just speak. Um, so yeah, you know, I think it's the right thing to do even in this moment. So, you know, I've been quite different growing up. Um, so I was actually 11 years old when I started my first business, um, which was I started renting PlayStation games to other kids at my school. So I had an older brother and... Um, he could rent from Blockbuster because he was old enough. So he would go to Blockbuster and rent a game. And then I would then go and rent that game to other kids, essentially because they couldn't rent it or their parents wouldn't allow them to. And, uh, and that was my first business, literally when I was 11 years old. And I started to make some money. It was cool. And um, I remember I used to buy, um, I think it was football stickers. And because I had so much money, I would like just buy hundreds and hundreds of packs to, 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 to get there. Uh, to finish my sticker book before like other kids. So, you know, like um, it was fun. But I didn't, I didn't really stop there. That was just the first thing. And from there, from school all the way to college, I just kept on doing things. Um, I ended up creating an account on eBay and Amazon and started selling things online. I think the account was under my brother's name and I would uh, essentially just buy and sell anything I could find. Um, that was the beginning of the mobile phone phase. So this is the year like 2004 till six. So mobile phones were like pretty much just, just new at that stage. And um, so I started selling any accessories I could find. I would, I would buy them online from another website and sell it. Or I would buy it from a website that you can buy from China and, and, and sell it on eBay and Amazon. And essentially it became a power seller. And um, it did really well. I think I was in college. So we, which is when you're 16 years old. And I remember it was like, I think it was January. And I remember looking at my bank statement and I had made 6,000 pounds that month. And, you know, it was so much money that I didn't know like what I'm going to do with this. Whilst all my friends were working in like high street shops making five, six, seven pounds an hour. It probably was less than. And, you know, I think the point I'm trying to make is that I actually didn't know at that time that I had a skill. I actually didn't realize that till way later that I'm actually good at this thing, which is called business, which is called buying and selling, which is called negotiation, which is called selling. Just plain, simple thing, recognizing a demand and then filling it with an idea, with the concept, with the execution. So, you know, just going back, I was 16, um, started making lots of money. Um, it was, you know, started living a good life. I started going away a lot, started uh, buying designer clothes and, you know, was absolutely enjoying it. And I think what's interesting when I look back is that none of my parents, my family, no one really even recognized it because um, I guess, you know, I, was, I would make the money and I would spend it. And it was just like, I was just doing what I felt was right at that moment. Um, but, you know, it didn't stop there. I actually decided to go to university. So coming from a, you know, uh, from a family where education is very important, um, a society and culture where education was very important, that um, I thought obviously all of this that I'm doing is just going to go away because, you know, I was brought up 
with the idea of that you need a real education. That's the only way you'll have a secure future. You know, it's your backup. It's what you'll go to because you have to get a real job. So, you know, I wish at that moment in time when I was young, I realized what my ability was and I, I went and followed that instead. But, you know, I went to university. I ended up studying um, accounting. And, um, but I, I kind of knew that I can't stop this ability that I have of like, you know, um, just, 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 doing, just doing things online and business. So whilst I was at university, I actually first set up a online radio. It was called a dot com radio. And I would uh, interview guests and stream it online. And it's just crazy because right now I'm here recording a podcast in 2021. And this is probably like 2006, seven. I was streaming a online radio show and I would uh, interview my friends and we would use um, we would use different accents. Um, and I would be like interviewing like, you know, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger and I'm interviewing somebody. And then we created a soundboard. And whilst we're doing the interview, we would just randomly like play sounds. I don't know if anyone here is a Napoleon Dynamite fan. Um, it's an old like cult movie. And that's when that movie came out. And we would use a lot of catchphrases from the movie. I guess even then I didn't recognize. Imagine if I did that on YouTube where, where I could have gone to. But I guess we just streamed it online. But I did set up a few other businesses. I set up an online ticketing platform. We would buy and sell tickets, a marketplace. It was like Ticketmaster, but essentially made by me. It actually got closed down because it's illegal to sell tickets without like having a license to sell. Um, I then started creating clothes, merchandise for a rapper named Skepta, who has a crew called Boy Better Know. I started printing their t-shirts and selling them on eBay just because he was getting popular unofficially. So he actually didn't know I was doing that. And um, so, you know, like I kept doing the thing of me, like I'm going to make money. I'm going to sell things online. I actually then started a makeup brand called Glam Yourself. I started importing makeup from China and selling it. So throughout university, even though I was studying, I kept making money on the side, kept doing my thing. But once again, I didn't realize that I have this ability and one of these businesses I should take seriously and turn into a real business. So what happened? Decided to... Once I graduated, I actually went and got a corporate job in an accounting firm and I kind of let go of all my businesses and focused on working. I started wearing a shirt. I started um, just living the work life as you kind of think you should. And I got serious about that. I did that for um, a number of years and um, actually end up qualifying and doing my ACCA exams, which is the professional qualification to be an accountant. And the day I received my certificate that I became a qualified accountant, I was like, this is it. I went and handed my notice, which was 2014. And I was like, I'm going to go back to doing what I do. I've achieved this thing that I always was taught that, you know, I need a real education. I need a professional qualification. And it was weird. I remember the day I got the certificate come through, it was just like, I have to quit my job. Uh, I don't really care. I spoke to my parents and family and everyone was like, what are you doing? You're not going to make no money. How are you going to pay rent? You have this like idea about like these people that are online, that have followers and whatever, like it's stupid. You know, uh, your accounting career is going somewhere, stick to it. You know, you're only going to move up and one day you'll become a partner at a firm or you can start your own firm. You know, the future is so bright. And I, I, I didn't listen to anyone. And I was just like, I'm going to do it. I quit my job. I was actually living in an apartment, which was um, very nice. 
I had to downgrade because I wouldn't be able to pay the rent. I moved into a six-bedroom house with, like, you know, a shared bathroom, a shared uh, kitchen and the rest in, in East London, which is um, in, in a borough which is actually one of the worst places in London. Um, so I decided to essentially, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just going to do this. So, yeah, that brings me, like, to 2014. And I guess a bit, bit of my backstory there. I don't want to go on for too long about it. But, you know, that's kind of what led me to then starting this business, which I have today. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a very interesting journey just because I guess so the business idea was 2014. I'll touch upon it briefly because I do want um, to get into the funding. Um, but 2014, the big idea was I was a huge forum user and um, I saw people online, you know, they create this content and I would love and I couldn't wait every day to wake up and see what like this guy is posting. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he lives. But I, I like the content that he posts. And I, I was absorbing that content daily. You know, I was very into fitness. So bodybuilding.com was one of the f- biggest uh, fitness social networks in the world on web. And um, I just thought to myself, like, why don't people trust like this professor on Amazon who's way more qualified, but people trust this random dude with like, you know, Mark 6767 username who's like typing about his workout and diet and uploading his photos why do I trust him over other people and it was because it was relatable and that kind of just stuck with me and I was like you know what with mobile phones coming with the rise of social media the amount of people that are joining the internet in the world social media in the world and everything that's going on and I guess you know my history of doing things online I just thought there's an opportunity here and in 2014, that was the big idea. I thought, I'm going to make what happens on forums, but I'm going to make it in a mobile app. And me and a friend of mine, we sat at home and we developed an app. It was called Nom Nom. It was a social media app that was essentially focused on the fitness vertical. The big idea was that we're going to get millions of users. Then I'm going to get the biggest people to sell to the smallest people. Because essentially, that's how social media works, right? That people follow other people. You'll end up having people that have followers or people that are followed the most and at the bottom you will have uh, people that are so interested that they'll end up buying from them I guess I understood the ability of and because of my growing up and I guess everything that I had done I understood how hard it is to get traffic to get customers to get an audience the hardest thing in business for anyone listening is how you're going to get customers and that is ultimately like the hardest thing and the success or failure of a business. So at that point, I just, I just knew that these people that essentially have all these people following them, they are their potential customers. I, that's how I saw them. I didn't see them as followers. I saw them as potential customers. And that was like the plan. And, um, you know, 2014 to 16, we tried everything, absolutely everything to make it work. And the truth is that the business failed the first iteration of the business today failed. And we couldn't com- compete with Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere else because their features when it comes to social media was, you know, me and a couple of people at home with some interns. It was impossible to compete with, uh, with, the, compete with uh, a company that's so big. But I realized I'd made a mistake and I need to focus on the selling. And that is what I'm truly about and is my whole history. I know how to sell instead of like social and all the other stuff that I was trying to build. So essentially, you know, we pivoted, which is 
you know, one of the most uh, things talked about, I guess, in the industry. And we, we focused on the e-commerce. And then in 2016, we launched What is Gemflow Today? And, you know, it's just, uh, just not looked back since. So, you know, just to cover just what happened over the past five years, 2016, when we launched, we focused on digital content. The idea was an influencer can sell anything. Let me give them the power to sell the content that people love from them. So obviously now it's very common and it probably seems like that's seems so everyone does it. But in 2016, nobody was doing it. 2016, if you had 100,000 followers, it was like having 10 million followers. Again, that may not seem like that, but it, it, it's actually how the market was at that time. At that time, an influencer would pretty much do anything for some free stuff. For a free t-shirt, you would post a business, you know, which would never ever happen in 2021 is what was happening then. So when I started reaching out to people saying that, hey man, look, you have this audience, you know, do you know you can like, you create this fitness content, do you know you can probably like sell this and people would pay for it? People were like, nah, no way. What, someone's gonna pay me for like seeing my exercise routine? I was like, yep, they will, trust me. And it was just like that. I emailed a thousand, I think five or 10 said yes, and the business kind of began. So 2016 and 17, I fully focused on, we built an e-commerce platform from the ground up that was purely focused on digital products and at this time, Shopify, they were focused on helping offline businesses become online. Squarespace was focused on helping people create an online portfolio. So everyone had their own niche. And our niche was that we're helping influencers, creators, YouTubers, digital content creators, whatever you want to call them. We were giving them a way to monetize their audience. Obviously, we were very small, but with a big vision and a big ambition at that time. So 2016, 17 flew by and then moving into an office, and uh, you know, the business began. 2018 was the beginning of what I would say the influencer marketing industry, and at that time I was like, okay, I was seeing all these influencers, even including my clients, uh, promoting other businesses, brands, physical products, and it would sell. And I started seeing the sales through people that I knew and businesses were telling me and our clients were telling me and showing me that I was like, this is the next thing for me. I need to build a way for someone to launch a physical direct-to-consumer brand. So, you know, after, I guess, in typical, I would say, fashion that I kind of work and what I believe in, I feel like I believe in doing everything myself. So I pretty much learned, I started, I had a bit of knowledge from growing up of how to buy things from China and importing and logistics and stuff, but it was time to do it at a whole nother level, so I just sat and started learning it. I learned the whole process from how you manufacture, how do you find factories, tech packs, what, what are they, what's importing, what's duty, what, um, what do I need to do to become an importer, everything that you can think of, which, what are the shipping companies, you know, what's air cargo, what's FOB, what's, uh, you know, what's a container, how much does it cost, where does the container go, all the stuff that you can imagine, I just started learning. You know, I would be up at nights, and this is what I do till this day. Last night I was actually up till half four in a similar fashion because you can pretty much teach yourself and do anything you want yourself. And that's probably the biggest thing I've learned and which I'll get into later. But, um, you know, so I set up the whole infrastructure and we started launching brands, physical brands, 2018. It did really well. 2019, I just started scaling the business from there. Once again, the team grew, we moved into new offices, and uh, we just started expanding 
our capability and the kind of stuff that we do. Our tech platform just got bigger and better. The, the products got bigger and better. Some amazing people joined as a team who are still here today. And they became a vital part of our growth and what we do as a business. Um, you know, I started adding. So I guess my style wasn't to date. I kind of start something myself. Then I find an expert to come and manage it. So on the products then, you know, in 2018, I found someone to come in and like manage it because they had the experience. But I had to first understand it myself to be able to then build it and then have someone come and take over. So, you know, 2019, um, I decided to go to the US because that's where the largest market is. I created, an, I set up an office there, set up a team there, set up a warehouse there, came back and just kept on scaling. You know, which brings me to, I guess, 2020. And in a year of COVID, where everything has been the most stressful thing in the world, as you can imagine, not knowing what's going to happen with the business, with the employees. You know, today I have a team of 56, not knowing, am I going to have to let them go? What effect is going to have that? What effect is that going to have on their families, on their livelihoods? You know, is my business going to continue? Going through all of that this year, you know, we've still managed to have our best year to date. And that is just because, you know, the team, the relentless drive that they have to want to achieve our clients in a similar way. So, you know, in this year, 2020, I guess last year is when I then decided, OK, I'm going to raise some money. And I guess when COVID hit, I'll tell you the real story of how it actually even prompted me. So there's someone that I know that I went to college with. Um, his name is Sabil. And um, I haven't spoken to him since I was probably like 16, 17 years old. And um, he messaged me out the blue on LinkedIn a couple of times. I ignored him because I ignore most people that don't get in touch with me in reality, just because never have the time and I just focus more on myself and the business. But I guess after the third, fourth time he messaged me, um, actually, no, I still ignored him. Then... Um, um, my, 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 my family's from Birmingham um, in the UK. I went to see my family and um, I randomly um, bumped into him. And, um, and I was like, oh, what's up and stuff. And we just said, hey, and it was like, oh, it'll be cool to connect, etc. Then a couple of months went by again. And I think it was February 2020. He then sent me a message again. Um, this time is via email. And I was like, you know, what? OK, let's meet up. Um, like properly and just catch up and see what's going on. So I met him for lunch in London and I was just telling him about the business and what we do and whatever. And he happened to be um, a very senior person in a firm called Deloitte, which are a corporate advisory firm. Essentially, they help businesses who want to raise money, who want to sell their business, etc. And it was just a very open conversation. I remember that day I met him in a restaurant and I guess this is timing is everything. I do believe that. And I also believe being honest and open and not having like the ego or talk too much about yourself is also very important. And I remember sitting with him and I was about to not share like what's going on, what's the business and, you know, like what am I looking for? What's the next thing? But I just decided to. And in that moment, I actually wasn't aware that he could help us. But he was like, you have an awesome business. I can help you. And I was like, oh, like, you know, that would be cool. Still not really knowing what that meant. I was like, okay. So I guess a couple of weeks went by. I think then we had another catch up. Um, and, 
And that's when I really realized that he was like, look, looking at your business, I think like you can raise a good amount of money. And um, what is your real goal? And then I just died, I guess, in a similar fashion to doing right now, just telling you my thoughts. I just died telling him what I want to build. You know, I have this passion or this drive to help people become entrepreneurs. And that's what I'm ultimately trying to build here with Genflow. And I just started telling him, look, this is how far I've come. I've told him the story, just like I've just been saying right here. And um, they wanted to sign us and uh, bring us in as a client and help us fundraise. So I guess, yeah, that's when the process began. And now I'm just going to just tell you exactly what happened. Um, so, you know, one of the first things, if you ever want to fundraise and for anyone listening, you actually need to have like a very, very good understanding of your business. And imagine if someone's going to come and they're going to believe how your business works and they're going to be like, yep, we see the potential here. You need to have a solid business plan. Not a business plan that's like written really well, a business plan that, you know, fundamentally works from a metrics point of view, you know. So that's where the journey began. And I guess I started sitting and looking at, okay, over the years, you know, I'm sure for a lot of you as well, you focus on making money, then you're focusing on hiring, then you focus on making more money, then you have some problems with clients, then you may have to switch some clients, or then you lose some money, and you kind of like it's a juggling act which like never kind of stops. But to then for me to, I had to stop and actually start thinking, how am I go, like what is actually that I've built? Um, because how do I tic- articulate what I'd, have I built? And that's when I really actually, firstly, I started writing a, a business plan, a pitch. And firstly, I wrote it about how for an influencer, Gemflow is the better option. Because my, my thinking was, you know, if you're going to go and promote another brand, you sell so, so much, you get a small percentage and you get a fee. But if you were to own the brand that you're selling, you're going to make more money, which is a good pitch. And that was my first pitch. But whilst I did that, I don't know why, like, it's just like, I didn't feel like it was like our best pitch. But then I really understood. And I guess I needed to go through the process to understand what have I built. And essentially, I realized, whilst I was making the business plan, is that what have actually built is the the new way of building businesses which what I now call the audience first approach and what I mean by that is so traditionally in the world any startups anyone here that has a startup or is building a startup of any kind you have an idea you then try to put a mini team together or find the co-founder of something of that sort you then maybe trying to raise some money and um, then you go ahead and create the solution, the product, um, essentially, which is then going to go out to uh, the world and essentially hopefully will make you successful. The audience first approach, which I now understand that we have almost like invented, is that you're doing that back to front. So you need to first build an audience. Then you create the product, the solution for that audience because then you have a ready-made audience waiting to buy your products. You will sell more. You will sell for cheaper. 
the cost of acquiring a customer basically would be cheaper. People are more aligned. They understand you and your brand. And so when this clicked for me, I guess from that moment, there was no looking back because I knew if I start pitching different investment firms, and essentially I can look at their portfolio and if they had, let's say, a yoga brand in their portfolio, I could almost guarantee that the metrics on one of the brands that we have created is going to outdo the metrics of their brand. I can guarantee that we get more traffic. It costs us less to sell a customer. Customers are more sticky. And the rest. We have more followers on social media. So, you know, I guess this was a, a very, very like interesting process, probably around February, March, just kind of like figuring this out, that what is the business? But that was just top line, right? But underneath, I had to really figure out, okay, we have lots of different clients. Um, you know, what really drives sales in a client? You know, how do we decide what product to make? How do we do this? How do we do that? And, um, so, you know, that, that was the beginning of like the idea of, of kind of like putting the business plan together. In that, though, you do have to, if I was to break it down a bit more, essentially you have to talk about what you've built. I talked about um, all the different infrastructure I had built in the business, which is product, which is tech, which is media, and all the software that we have built. What does that mean? How have we built it? What is the market? What is the market opportunity? How many people are there out there that, you know, are influencers or will be influencers? Or what are the consumers buying habits these days? And that's when everything started to come together because the truth is all the numbers backed up everything that I believe. Eight in 10 people today, young people, Gen Z, want to be an influencer. There's like full published stats on this, you know, and that really obviously just helped my case. Then there's stats on, I think, 70% of things ever purchased, the discovery actually happens on social media. It's not Google. People don't know that. People don't know that subconsciously you'll see a sofa, for instance, on social media and someone will be like, oh, I love my sofa and they'll tag the brand and you'll go and click it and that's how you first see it. You may not buy it like that, but then later on, you may then Google that company's name and you end up buying it. But the initial discovery is like around 70% of things you buy from discovering on social media. So almost at every angle that you look, it seems like people's attention is on social media people buy from social media, people follow people on social media. So as you can probably guess, it just means for a company like Genflow, we're in the right time and the right space because essentially we help people build businesses that sell products. And um, so, you know, I built a whole pitch around it. I think we built a business plan of, you know, 100 plus pages. We work closely with uh, Deloitte and internally. Also my CFO, Carl, he joined me on this process from the very beginning. So me and him, I guess when lockdown happened here in the UK, we would just spend hours and hours every single day on the phone, just working through it. Then we had to create, which I would say is probably one of the hardest exercises of my life. You have to create a five-year financial model. You have to literally say every single thing that's going to happen financially over the next five years, like sales, but you have to break that down into which clients, how much is each month each client's going to sell and why, you know, at what rate is a client going to grow, um, what other revenue streams are ever going to come in, what are the expenses, 
Then on the back of that, how much is the product going to cost? And then staff, how much staff do you need according to the number of clients? You know, as the clients increase, staff increases. Do you need more staff as you get bigger? Do you need less? Rent, marketing, how much does it cost to get an influencer? Um, you know, it was endless, if I'm honest. Endless, endless, endless. And you know, you start you start on Excel basically. You start creating tabs and you just start you start. Then you start adding formulas and formulas and it starts getting more and more complex. But we took it to a whole other level, if I'm honest. We built in stuff like if you open an office in Miami, it's gonna cost this much, it's gonna cause this many sales, and we had to build the model so you know it can actually show you, um, you know, so you can actually play with it that let's open it in April, nah, let's open it in June, or if you open it in November, how does that affect the model? What's going to happen? The profitability of the business, the growth of the business year on year. So it was very tough, it was very tough, it was exciting, but at the same time very, very tough, because you're like, what's the right answer? That was the biggest thing for me, I was like, what does it need to say so someone's gonna invest in us, you know? Does it need to say 10 million in five years? Is it gonna have to say 100 million? Does it have to say 500 million? So you almost have to like make up a number that you, and then just believe in it, basically, because that's what the required is, you kind of sit, work it out, and then slowly you get more and more confident. You're like, yeah, you know, if so-and-so happens, this will happen. Well, you know, we did this last year. And I think the crazy thing for us was looking back in 2018, 19, 20 and the growth. And that's what it was like, okay, if you grow at the same rate, obviously it's going to be exponential, but that's not possible. So then what we do, but I guess it did really help looking back and what we've achieved to then figure out what we're going to do going forwards. So, you know, I guess... After all of that, after getting all our pitch together, the next stage was we made a list of firms that we believed would be interested in investing in Genflow. And that was a list of 70 firms. And when you're doing that, you have to first look at who invests in your sector. And for us, that was direct-to-consumer, media, social media, was probably our sectors, along with some tech and um, who invests at this stage? You know, I'm not gonna get into it today, but there are different stages of business. So what you refer to is like a seed stage when you're first starting, series A is the stage that we were at, where you have a business, it's making money, but now you're like trying to grow it. And um, so, you know, we made a list of 70 firms. Obviously this is where Deloitte really helped us because they know the firms, they've done deals in the past. And uh, I guess it was around July when we hit the green, you know, we hit the button to be like, let's go. It's time now, we're ready. I think we have all the docs, we have all everything. Then what you create actually is a two-page teaser where we were called uh, Impact. So you don't actually put your company name on the document and you're going to basically contact these 70 firms and you're going to send them this two-pager, which is called an investment teaser, and it's going to say... Basically, we were called Project Impact. It would say in Gemflow, it would say nothing. It would say nothing about me, nothing about clients, nothing. Because it's completely objective because what you want is an investment firm to pick it up and look at the merits to be like, Project Impact is a business in this industry. They have these results. This is the amount of cash they're looking for and this is the potential return for you. And then we see if anyone gets back to us. In that, I think the most important part of the funding whole thing is when you're creating all your documents and everything, at the end of the day, it's a business for the investors. They need to be able to get a return in X amount of time.
And this is not a return of cash in terms of people want to put money in. So what you probably hear of from family and friends or small investors, you know, people put, people give you a £10,000 investment, they'll be like, how am I going to get my money back? I want it back in installments. That's not how, how business investments work. They invest for equity and they want to return when you sell the company. So that's how it physically works. And then you got, they got to make sure. So obviously, because I'm, I, obviously I know about this stuff a bit, you know, you need to have the understanding of if someone's going to give you 10 million, they're going to want like 50 million back basically when the company's sold. So on the back of that, you basically, when you contract the firms and everything, you got to see what their investment thesis is and then does our pitch meet that? Because if it doesn't, they're just going to say no. So out of the 70, you know, the truth is we went out to them and then a lot of them rejected us. Because of that, because the investment thesis wasn't right, a lot of them said, look, we don't believe in the influencer space, it's too new, we're actually sitting and watching it, we're going to do it later, blah, blah, blah. And I think after a few weeks of going through all the different people, I think we were down to about 10 people that were interested in a serious way. So what happens then is you get them to sign an NDA, you get them to do all of that stuff, and then you send them all your documents. So that's when they actually get to find out it's Genflow, it's me, it's the team, the, you know, and the rest. And um, then we began what was the stage one of the pitch process, which meant I had a three-hour Zoom pitch with about 10 firms. And honestly, these pitches were the most <laughs> draining things you can imagine. It would be me and Carl, my CFO, and a couple of the guys from Deloitte as our advisors, and on the other side, there'll be like three people from the firm. And you basically, in that three hours, you get grilled on all, all, almost every little aspect of your business ever you can imagine. It's like an exam, basically, like the hardest exam of your life, live and in the moment. And, you, you know, uh, we had people saying to us, really, these girls on Instagram that are just like in bikinis, they can sell? I don't believe that. Or, you know, all be like, this is absolutely genius. How did you guys come up with this? So you're dealing with all sorts of things whilst they're really questioning the business. I remember there was this huge firm from Switzerland who have like, I think like 10 billion under management or something. And they were like, um, but yeah, we just don't really like believe in like that influencers can sell. But I'm like, yes, but you looked at our stuff. You've seen the sales, you know, like, they do sell, we're selling it. So it's interesting that a lot of people, even in the pitch process, it's almost like they got onto the pitch process just to still prove that their opinion is correct, even though they have the proof. But you know, at the same time, there were some amazing people that I met. So it was it was a tough pitch process, um, you know, extremely time consuming. And whilst I was going through all this at the same time, you know, business is still going, clients are still happening, COVID is still happening stock is delayed, we can't shoot content, we can't do this. So, you know, carried on doing all that stuff and making time for this. So, you know, I guess, you know, I, I have a young daughter at the time, I guess she, she was probably about one years old, about July, and, uh, and then my wife, and just, you know, them being able to deal with, um, I guess, the amount of hours and the work and what's going on and the uncertainty, you know, it, it was... It was really fun and intense and crazy at the same time. So I guess moving forwards, out of the 10 firms, what happens next is you actually go to the firms, Deloitte did, and you tell them to make an offer. 
it was very smart of them that the tactic was, if you want to keep speaking to Gemflow, you got to put an offer on the table. Because we knew we have interest. There's, essentially, we knew we had 10 companies. So if you want to work with us, you want to know more about Gemflow, you want more time with me. And what they want is in this next stage, they want more time with the more of the Gemflow team, you got to put an offer on the table. And this was amazing because this when it all became real for me, because up till then, I was 100% thinking, we're not getting no investment. This is a little bit of fun. I'm learning a lot. It's all good if you don't get the investment. And I guess as you keep, you know, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll get to know me more and the way I work and the way I think. I always think the worst. I don't know why, but then I'm always prepped to never be upset. Not even in just business, in just life, with family, with friends. I think the worst of everybody. In a weird way, not that they're going to do something to me, like that I'm not going to have, I don't have any expectations from people. Most people, I know we've gone slightly off topic, but most people get upset because they had an expectation of a family member or a friend or of a client, of whoever, that they're going to do X, Y, Z. And when they don't, you feel upset. So for some weird reason, I've kind of always lived with this like zero expectation kind of like way of living. So even in this process at this time, we had 10 firms. I had zero expectations of getting any money. I was fully ready for Deloitte to call me one day and say, oh, sorry, Sean, everyone's pulled out. We had a good go, you know, maybe try later. So I was like ready. I was always ready. But I remember the day, um, I think I just went out for some coffee. Um, I think some coffee shops had opened up then in London with my wife and, and my daughter. And I remember getting an email from, from Sibyl. Actually, no, that, that, that's wrong. He sent me a message saying, um, like, can you talk? And I was like, oh, here it comes. I just knew it. I just knew it's not going to happen. Like, why did I think it's like, it's just, and it was mentally such a weird feeling because if you get the investment, the amount of stuff I'll be able to do, but then I would hold myself back from thinking about that because I'll obviously I'll get excited. You know, you start being like, oh man, just imagine the things I can do for the business. Imagine what we'll do. But then I'm like, oh, but then it's not going to happen. So why am I like thinking about it? Because I'm just going to get so, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect me so much that don't. So he messaged me. I was fully ready for it. And when I answered the call, he was like, we got the first offer in, it's this much. And I, I honestly, at that point, I was like, oh shit, like this is actually a real thing. This is gonna happen. And um, over the next few days, we received a few more offers. And um, I remember my, my dad actually came to stay with me. He doesn't really understand my business in complete, but he obviously knows the gist of what I'm doing and everything else. I remember he had just come to stay and I was just like sitting with him saying to him, like I've received these three offers and I guess you know, we've raised um, $11 million. We actually had offers that were higher and lower than that amount. And um, and it was real at that very point. And, and, um, and that's how I guess when it all became real that, okay, this is happening. Then all of a sudden it was like, wow, okay, I've never been here before. And what, what, and just kind of like understanding the offers. They were actually quite complex in reality. Um, they were like long documents with, with, with all different stipulations and other stuff and whatever else. So it took a bit of time with Deloitte, a couple of weeks actually to kind of break them down and understand them all. And then um, what we did was we decided to go ahead with all three. Again, that was a very smart move from Deloitte. We went ahead 
and um, we did a round two. So we invited all of them into our office at that time. I guess the restrictions had lifted then at that time that you could like work and all that kind of stuff. So we brought them into the office and we started, um, we did a pitch with the whole management team here at Genflow and we all had to fully pitch. Again, it's a three hour face-to-face -face pitch and um, it went really well. And then there were a few other stages. We had to have a review with um, on our finance financial model we had made. There was a few other things we had to do. And um, and then Deloitte went back to them to say to them, guys, we now need your final offer. And what was also cool is that obviously because we had their offer, this was our time to negotiate. So I was like, look, we went to all of them, pushing them to basically give us a better offer, whether they take less equity, give more money and whatever else. And, you know, um, over the next few weeks, we ended up getting the final offers through. And um, I think we had two offers which were very, very good. And it was very hard to decide between them. And um, I think I asked for another call with both parties to truly understand um, the like who will be the best person to work with because this investor obviously what happened is they're going to join our board i will be speaking to them all the time and the rest so yeah i guess um we accepted an offer which was from bgf ventures they're one of the largest investors in the world they invest in companies like gusto Jimbox, and, and about 300 other in their portfolio they're actually backed by the uk government and the banks so it's a solid fund, meaning like, you know, I was conscious about the fact that I don't want money where I don't know where the source of the money is from, because that is also a thing. I don't want to like be supporting, you know, some fund which is coming from, I don't know what source that, how will that reflect on me? Um, so yeah, I accepted the offer and it kind of felt like, oh, done deal. Everything is chilling now, done. But then basically due diligence begins. And I didn't know what that was. I just thought they probably asked for some information and that's it. And what happened was, up till now, investors are, you know, looking at us as we are the best thing in this world. And I was loving it. And the moment we shook hands with the party and we moved into due diligence, the tables turned. And now it was like, we're on the defense and now they want to know X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z and all this stuff. So what happened was BGF, they bought in four different um, firms slash people that are going to check. Number one, the finances of the company. Number two, the HR of the company. Number three was the tech of the company. And I think um, the tech of the company. And number four was the manufacturing of the company. So yeah, the next four weeks ended up being we had to provide every contract we have ever done with every client, every contract with every employee, every deal we've ever done, every line of financial record possible that we had ever done, um, fill out lots of other documents and stuff, factory information, how we do this, how we do that, line by line code that we've written ever, and then we had sessions with all these different people, different firms, um, to give them all the information. And there'll be so many questions. I remember I would wake up and be like, oh, okay, today, this is my plan. 
And it would just begin. You'd get an email from X law firm and they're like, right, so after looking at these seven contracts, please explain to us why in this contract, you know, uh, the IP is written like this, but then in this contract is written like this. What does this mean? And you're like, okay. So you literally, that's how it was every single day for days and days and days, for weeks. And um, there was a few very difficult points. So we had in our financial due diligence, I'm not going to get into it too much, obviously, because parts of it is obviously confidential, and I don't want to annoy our investors. If you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, But, you know, there were a few difficult times because people struggled to understand our business model and how we work, and people have a lot of opinions. Um, So, you know, we had to kind of, like, weather it all. But it was stressful, and, um, you know... We got through it. That's, that's, I guess, the, the, the end of it is that we got through all the due diligence. And at the same time, we're negotiating the actual deal. So what happens is you create an investment agreement, which is between the investment firm and us. And you have to agree every single point of the business, which is like, who's going to be on the board? Who has what decision-making power? You know, I want to ensure that no one can kick me out the business, you know? because it's my business, I'm the CEO, I want to remain the CEO, there should be no reason I can be kicked out unless I do something like wrong, like I commit some fraud or something, of course, but not just because I'm not doing my job properly, so I have to protect myself. And uh, so yeah, that was a long process, you know, I would have two, three hour call with our lawyer, then our lawyer will go and speak to their lawyer, then they'll come back and we'll do it again. So it was a constant thing. So we negotiated all the terms, and it's a thing called giving indemnities which I didn't know what it was. What that means is an investor asks you to personally guarantee some of the stuff in the business because we're so new. So if I'm saying X, Y, Z and we have some proof, they're like, we believe you, it's great, but we want you to personally give us a guarantee that if this was to be false, we can sue you. Um, So yeah, you know, that brought the end to the due diligence. And, you know, from there, there was still a lot of points which caused a lot of stress at the end, if I'm honest. There was a couple of days where it felt like the deal is actually off. I remember I went to Birmingham to my parents' house and it was the night that this problem occurred. I can't get into it. But it was in the moment felt like the deal is not going to happen. And I remember feeling so stressed. And... This whole investment process actually made it so tough that I actually developed a new habit, which I, it was like so bizarre for me, that I would, I would like clench my hand really hard. And remember that night, I was trying to then sleep after this like news or this, this thing that happened. And it was just one of the hardest like nights just in general in terms of the level of stress and felt like my head is going to blow up and the amount of migraine and everything else. It just because it was so close and, it, and I was like, I knew it. I knew it was not going to work. It just felt too good to be true. But luckily enough, over the coming days, after a lot of negotiation and, and sorting a few things out, we managed to get over this um, issue and um, we got the deal done. And um, I think we got the deal done on uh, in December. So we started in February. So I think, yeah, approximately 10 months and um, we actually got the deal done the day of our Christmas party for the whole team, which we had to cancel and do it on Zoom. But it was the same day. It was an amazing day. And we got the deal done and they transferred the money. The money hit the bank account and it was just something surreal. 
So, you know, I guess that's, 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 that was the actual process of raising money. Everyone must have their own story. This was mine. I don't think there's a certain way, but there is a certain way when it comes to when the opportunity is right in front of you, you just got to be honest and real. And I think that's what I did. I think I pitched really, really well because I was just honest. And I was also honest about where we are as a business and where we want to go. And I guess I'll touch upon it slightly. So, you know, the, I will be making, I'm not sure if the next episode, but we will be covering, um, actually in the next episode, I will be covering like what my plans are with the investment and everything else. But just, just to touch upon it slightly, essentially the funding is going to give us the ability to do everything that we do, but at just a higher, higher level. And that's the exciting thing. So, you know, it's so exciting thing. Like, and I've literally just been sitting and planning it for the past few weeks. And um, right now, just for context, I'm here in Dubai and I flew some of my management team out here as well. And together we've been working on the strategy um, because, yeah, what to do with $11 million is a big decision. And where does it all go? We had an original plan. Is that still a plan and what's going to happen? So, yeah, I guess, look, that was the story of how I've raised the money. And, um, you know, this podcast um, predominantly is going to be myself and I decided to call it Life of an Entrepreneur. Firstly, I was surprised I wasn't taken. I bought the domain and um, it was on sale, but the fact that it was available. um, I feel like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur like me, it really is not easy. It's very lonely. And, you know, there is no easy answer. A lot of people are looking to work at an efficiency level or a way of life that basically is superficial and has been created by people who actually don't do that themselves. I have a company with 56 people. We sell millions of products, make millions. And I still live my life in the exact same way I did when I first started, that I still work in the same way. I don't have no crazy morning routine, which makes me like, you know, work at efficiency level thousand. I wake up stressed. I wake up tired. I love it. I have fun. I speak to all my team members in a normal way, regardless if I'm the CEO. I I don't shy away from doing customer support if I have to today. And ultimately, I guess part of my, I guess what I've learned in this whole process and something you want to take away from this podcast and I get just me and Gemflow and as a whole, you know, I have this thinking that you can do anything yourself. And if you truly focus on it, a lot of people, including yourself, if you're an entrepreneur today, just stop all the extra stuff um, and just focus on generating revenue and listening to customers. I get so many messages saying that, will you mentor me? Will you listen to my idea and give me feedback? And I always say, no, I truly believe you don't need a mentor. A lot of people send me messages saying that, oh, mentors can show you the way they've done it before. They have all the experience. They do. But it's in the way it happened to them at that time. You, the best thing someone can do is actually try to execute themselves. And that's what I would say. I guess I wanted to fundraise. And yes, I took an advisory firm as because that's what they do. But the, the thing of how I'm going to, what the business is, how am I going to pitch, it was all down to me. And then my team supported me 
and which was great and without the help it would not be possible but you know you really have to focus on doing it yourself and that is the number one thing for if you're going to drive your business forwards um, you know we're talking about lots of this stuff coming up um, but yeah hope you enjoyed this podcast this episode um, if you want to know more it's genflow.com go and check out the company come follow me on instagram at sean.hanif i'll pull this in for anyway in the description of the podcast make sure you subscribe episodes are not going to be exactly like weekly but they will be at random times and a lot of times from here i'm going to bring everyone listening on the journey with me this was more about the fundraise when moving forwards i'm going to talk about the challenges of really really running a business of having a team right now i need to hire 30 people i need to sell more i need to sign more clients i need to open more offices i need to keep my current clients happy and how am i going to do all of that i'm going to be talking about it on here um and the reason i'm doing in a podcast format i guess without video because it's easy for me to just get my thoughts out and it feels quite refreshing to be able to just like speak um so yeah this is the life of an entrepreneur podcast my name is sean hope you enjoyed this episode and i will see you in the next